Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 47, Crisis at Verdun. As the summer of 1916 grew hotter, so too did the battlefields. On the Eastern Front, the Russians under Alexei Brusilov continued to press the Austrians in Galicia. On the Zanzo Front, Cardona's army had checked the Austro-Hungarians at Tyrol, forcing Conrad to halt further operations. Each day, the warring nations battered each other incessantly, casualty lists lengthened, and the home fronts buckled under the strain. But it was on the Western Front where things would ratchet up even further. In the north, the Anglo-French armies continued to marshal for the coming Allied offensive along the Somme. Sir Douglas Haig, commander of the British Expeditionary Force, and his French counterpart, Georges of Joffre, poured over maps and logistics, seeking the decisive blow that would send Germany reeling. All while, the grinder at Verdun continued to churn, its appetite never sedated. All of this, all the planning, training, and sacrifice, had up to this point been balanced on a fine edge, with each article pinned on the hope that the military situation remained unchanged. 1916 was designed to be a decisive year, whether it was Joffre's meeting at Chantilly, where he aimed to grind down the German army, or von Falkenhayn's infamous Christmas telegram, where the meticulous German chief laid out his plans to break the Entente, the key actors in this drama knew the tide was turning, and whichever side broke first would find their hopes of victory dwindle. 1916 was a momentous year, one which held the fate of nations. But in a year of such critical importance, it was not in Paris, St. Petersburg, or Berlin where Europe's fate would be decided. Instead, it was a tiny village in the Meuse department of France, a place where if not for the horrors unleashed by the Battle of Verdun, its name would not grace even the most detailed histories. The village of Fleury, located five kilometers north of Verdun, was unassuming to say the least. Its pre-war population was a mere 422, and was known for its agriculture and woodworking. Beyond that, we don't know a whole lot about the village prior to the war. It had just three main streets, but contained all the essentials. A schoolhouse, bakery, chapel, tobacconist, and general store. The bulk of its population were farmers, who lived along the edge of the woods and frequented the village to sell wares and hold market. The village itself was not fortified and was serviced by just a single rail line. In other words, its potential as a military target was minuscule. But as we know, this war did not follow the conventional rules, and the Battle of Verdun was certainly no exception. The Charnel House had raged for five months. Each day, French and German armies devoured one another with thunderous artillery exchanges and murderous infantry assaults. Men fought and died by the thousands, fighting over ruined villages, shattered forests, and corpse-congested ravines. Only in the hellish landscape of the necropolis could a target like Fleury emerge as a beacon of hope. By June 1916, Fleury existed in name only. Its inhabitants had long evacuated, and when the shells began to fall it was shown no clemency. For men at the front, it was little more than a name on a map. Its pitiful remains had sunk deep into the earth, and the surrounding woods had vanished like chalk wiped from a blackboard. Its soil poisoned by the oversaturation of nitrates and decomposition. It was a dead village, an apparition inseparable from the grey smear surrounding it. Yet, during the latter part of the month, Fleury became the most important name in all of France, and became synonymous with the horrors inflicted at Verdun. 
It was at this tiny village where the battle reached its zenith, with the German army throwing their lot behind one last push towards the city in the hope of final victory. After the capture of Fort Vaux on the 7th of June, the Germans were one step closer to Verdun. The loss of another fort had sent a tremor of panic throughout France. Discontent with the way things at Verdun and the war in general were being conducted, the politicians in Paris were pointing fingers once again. On the 16th of June, the Chamber of Deputies met in secret to debate this very issue. It was agreed that the country was caught in an undertow of conflicting goals. Everyone from the government, the military, down to the pedestrian on the street had their own thoughts on how to win the war. This fissure threatened to sink France's prospects, so the government was keen on finding a solution. Behind all the inertia, there was one lingering question. Where would France's fate be decided? At Verdun or on the Somme? While this may seem like a simple enough question, what clouded it were the two generals representing the competing strategies. For Verdun, it was Pétain, the hero and savior of the Meuse, and for the Somme, Joseph Joffre the boisterous, much maligned commander-in-chief whose reputation had fallen the previous year. Operation Makeup, when it was launched by the 5th Army on the 2nd of June, brought personal animosities to the forefront. The Union Sacre of 1914 was beginning to crack, sparking a Donnybrook between the government and military. Tensions between the two had always been high, but now it was magnified tenfold with the latest Verdun crisis. At the center of the debate, as always, was Joffre who had masterfully played both sides of the card. What helped spark this latest row were a series of anonymous letters which had leaked to the press. Quoting an unknown source, the letters outed Joff, lambasting him for leaving the Meuse vulnerable to attack, and alleging that he had been willing to see the east bank of the river overrun. As we discussed previously, these criticisms of Joff were not unfounded. He had knowingly left the area undermanned despite the presence of the 5th Army. It had not at all been interested in the battle until the capture of Fort Douaumont, but only after public outrage forced him to do so. For Joff, Verdun was always a secondary affair, ancillary to his grand strategy, which was to fight an offensive war over a defensive one. Nothing perhaps illustrates this belief more than his remark to Pétain, in which he said that things at Verdun were not all that bad. The day of this exchange was the morning of February 25th, the day of Duomont's fall. Of course, a defining characteristic of any great politician is to seize on hindsight and act like they predicted it all along. Joff's decision to leave Verdun undermanned was indeed short-sighted, and dare I say catastrophic. Besides a few local commanders, no one of influence was able to stand up to Joff's imposing figure. He remained the hero of the Marne, and having watched the Germans make short work of the Belgian forts during the war's opening days, you cannot be faulted for thinking that siege warfare was at an impasse. You see, the issue was not about whether Verdun would be attacked. It was whether it was worth defending to the last drop of French blood. After all, they could simply abandon the city, and fall back to bitter positions between the Meuse and Aisne, thus securing the rail lines linking Paris to the east. This, of course, having the benefit of avoiding the slaughter altogether, but more importantly, refusing to fall into Falkenhayn's trap. The capture of Fort Duamond was the turning point of the whole thing. When news arrived that it had fallen without protest, a national commitment to the battle ensued. Although the appointment of Pétain was a smart move, Joff remained indifferent to the crisis. Not for one second would he be distracted from his main objective, and hoped that once the enemy had been checked, he could again divert all resources back to the Somme. 
The problem was that Peytan did his job a bit too well. At a time of national crisis, his brilliant defense of the city had stopped the 5th Army in its tracks, elevating him into a hero and powerful rival to Joffre. Peytan would have been a suitable replacement if Joffre had been ousted, but few in France had the stomach for the patient, carefully constructed battle which he championed. He was seen as someone who lacked the aggressive spirit embraced by Joffre, and later Nevel and Magin. To Peytan, Verdun was an essential battle, one which promised little but had to be won. It was a fight like none other, requiring infantry and heavy guns at a rate unimaginable the previous year. His strategy paid off dividends, and within weeks of assuming control, had turned the tables against the Germans, forcing them to attack from a disadvantage and thus mirroring Falkenhayn's old strategy against him. Here emerged a paradox. Peytan did his duty. He gripped the crisis and stabilized the line, but at the same time emerged as a threat to Joffre's grand strategy. The bucket system he introduced was instrumental to his success, but it required large quantities of manpower to maintain, usually two or three combat divisions every two days. This meant that unit Joffre at earmarked for the Somme were being sent over Dun. Inevitably, this weakened France's commitment on that front, requiring the British to make up the difference. So a tug-of-war over France's resources ensued, which soon ballooned into something far greater. By the end of April, Joffre had grown tiresome of Pétain's defensive scheme. With the start date of the Somme campaign inching closer, Joffre was eager to see 2nd Army press the Germans through a series of aggressive counterattacks. The request horrified Pétain, but his protests made little difference. Joffre used his political prowess and had Pétain removed from the battlefield, promoting him to command Army Group Center. While Pétain still had nominal control over the battlefield, the day-to-day -day decisions were left to his replacements, the aggressive duo of Robert Nevel and Charles Mangin, men whom Joffre hoped would soon be rolling the Germans northward. This brings us back to the Chamber of Deputies meeting of June the 16th. Fort Vaux had fallen after a week-long siege, and Joffre's wonderboy Nevel had failed to relieve it. This was seen as further proof of Joffre's ineptness. The meeting took place in secret, and against the wishes of Joffre and Premier Aristide Briand, the man who voted in Joffre's confidence at the new year. Each attendee were elected delegates from the various departments, many of whom had an axe to grind with the high command. Their main concern, as always, was Joffre's conduct of the war. But this meeting represented a departure from the norm. For the first time, the Union Sacré, that almost unnatural political truce since 1914, was being challenged from within the government. Although concealed from the public, the attendees acted with urgency. The debate was opened by a former sergeant, an imposing figure of over six feet tall. Walking on sticks from wounds received near Verdun in 1914, the deputy from the Meuse department took the podium and began his speech, saying, quote, What might seem astonishing is that until now we have all kept quiet. End quote. The sergeant was future Minister of War André Maginot. Yes, the same Maginot who gave his name to the Maginot Line, a stretch of fortifications built during the interwar. At this point in the story, though, Maginot was no mere politician. He had been a civil servant prior to the war, eventually becoming the assistant to the Governor General of Algeria before launching his own political career. Inspired by the Union Sacré of August 1914, Maginot enlisted in the army and was stationed near Verdun during the German invasion. 
His wounds from those early battles gave him the right amount of gravitas. He wore them with pride, and famously told a fellow diplomat, I am like my leg. It won't bend, and neither will I. Maginot was the living embodiment of disillusioned patriotism. A political soldier, never mind a decorated one, was a dual threat. Taking the podium, Maginot delivered a blistering attack on Joff's command. Using his government and military connections, he obtained classified documents regarding army losses in the first two years, and compared them to the popular numbers reported in the press. They painted a dull picture. Joff's conduct of the war was one of passivity and negligence, Maginot berated. A war, quote, interrupted by partial offensives, resulting in no significant gain, but in the most murderous losses. If this was not shocking enough, what Maginot followed up with stunned the room into silence. Having done the numbers himself, Maginot exposed a chilling truth. France was losing more men on her single front than the Germans in both West and East. Maginot based his calculations by giving the army the benefit of the doubt. German newspapers had announced that as of March 1916, their losses in killed amounted to 667,833, with another 357,835 missing and 1,658,457 wounded. Maginot then compared this number to the French estimates, which the army admitted was upwards of 760,000 killed to a similar 361,427 missing. Assuming that all German and French missing were dead, Maginot then came up with the number of 1,025,668 German dead to 1,112,427 French. Reiterating that German casualties were being sustained on two fronts, the chamber nearly erupted in pandemonium. It was clear that Joffre was lying, or worse, totally out of touch with reality. The public had been told that things at Verdun were going swimmingly. Pétain had secured the lines, and now that the Germans were attacking, they were the ones taking the lion's share of the losses, when in reality, it was the other way around. Maginot was not done yet. As he brought his argument to a crescendo, he played his trump card. A letter, dated August 1915, written by Lieutenant Colonel Emile Drian, a vocal critic of Joffre, who advised against disarming the forts. Now, for some reason, I somehow bypassed the importance of Lieutenant Colonel Driand in our earlier discussions. So to make up for it, I'm going to give a brief summary of this remarkable figure before we continue. When the Germans attacked on the 21st of February, Colonel Driand, already over 60 years of age at the time of Verdun, was stationed in the Bois de Caire, a wooded hilltop 12 kilometers north of the city. Under his command were two battalions of chasseurs, elite infantry specially trained for rapid action. These two battalions, the 56th and 59th, were dug in opposite the 5th Army at the north end of the east bank. This put them at ground zero when the German attack hit. As the artillery swept away Drian's flanking positions, his chasseurs held the ground tenaciously, hunkering down in their bunkers for the shelling to lift. When it did, they rose from their shelters and greeted the first German waves with a whirlwind of machine gun and rifle fire. In the cold, frigid darkness, Drian's 1,200 chasseurs held up 10,000 Germans for over 24 hours, a standoff rivaling only Fort Vaux in its drama and intensity. 
On the 22nd of February, with the Germans pressing on all flanks, Driand ordered the evacuation. His chasseurs were low on ammunition and had been reduced to just 500 men and a handful of officers. Realizing their sole escape route would be cut off, Drian burned his papers and organized his men to withdraw south. But as they emerged from their dugouts, they were silhouetted against an open road. Deadly inflating fire from German machine guns ripped into them, killing and wounding dozens more. Drian, having stopped to help some of the wounded, was among the dead. A single bullet had pierced his temple, killing him instantly. Drian's death secured his martyrdom, especially as the battle ground on and optimism faded. Drian had been a popular writer prior to the war, and more importantly, a vocal critic of Joffre who protested the disarming of the Verdun forts. Like Maginot, Drian was an elected deputy from Nancy, capital of the lost province of Lorraine, and spent a great deal of time in the Meuse area. Maginot then knew exactly what he was doing when he produced the colonel's letter, like a revenant brought back to shame the living into action. Written in August 1915, Drian's words were harrowing, and broke the silence of the chamber, bringing the deputies to their feet. Quote, the sledgehammer blow will be delivered on the line verdun nancy What moral effect would be created by the capture of one of these cities? We are doing everything, day and night, to make our front inviolable. But there is one thing about which one can do nothing, the shortage of hands, lack of workers, and lack of barbed wire. End quote. When Maginot informed the assembled that Joffre had received and rejected this warning, the applause which followed was like vindication at last, not just for Maginot, but also Drian and the legions of French dead for whom it was too late. But this was June 1916. With the Russians pressing in the east and the Somme offensive fast approaching, Joffre's strategic vision was about to bear fruit. Briand, who had strongly opposed the deputies' meeting, understood that removing Joffre now could trigger a governmental collapse. To ensure the public, and their allies that things were on track, Brian again voted in Joffre's favor. Maginot, disheartened by the outcome, agreed to withhold future arguments, but insisted that his protest be entered in the official records. Although Joffre avoided the axe for a second time, this latest roundabout left his reputation hanging by a thread. The British were equally concerned. Haig had written the British ambassador in Paris, asking if the current mood threatened Joffre's position. But really, the government had no choice but to close ranks and support Joffre once again. Likewise, the army, Joffre, Pétain, and Nivelle, set aside their personal differences and defended one another against the political schemers. So despite all the hoo-hawing that summer, little changed. The mutual distrust between government and army continued, as their men fought on bravely, hoping for some form of conclusion. For their part, the Germans were not immune to these sort of calamities either. They too were facing their own set of turmoils that summer. Brusilov's attack in Galicia was the first. It distracted Falkenheim's attention from Verdun, to the point when he was forced to send four combat divisions to assist the Austro-Hungarians. Likewise, his rivals in Berlin and elsewhere looked on Verdun with growing desperation. The battle was now 19 weeks old, and little progress had been made since their opening gains in February. The list of Falkenheim's enemies began to grow, including the Chancellor Betham Holwig, Foreign Secretary von Jakau, and the ever-present Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff, who used the disaster in Galicia to undermine Falkenheim's reputation. Even his biggest supporter, Kaiser Wilhelm, had grown pessimistic. 
In a letter that spring, Wilhelm admitted that he too felt the war could no longer end in a great victory. But what concerned Falkenhayn the most was not the happenings at Verdun, nor the cloaks and daggers in Berlin for that matter. To him, as long as the French continued to lose more men than the Germans, their mission was self-evident. He dismissed the actual exchange rate of 1.1 French to 1 German, opting to favor a preposterous rate of 5 to 2, which he ensured the Kaiser was accurate. What did keep him up at night was the fact that neither France nor England had produced a counterattack. You'll recall from our earlier episodes, Falkenhayn's strategy was three-tiered. Phase 1 was the exhaustion of the French army. Phase 2 was to prepare and contain the Allied counterattack before entering Phase 3, which was to mop up the remaining enemies and to march on Paris. By June 1916, the two armies remained in a death grip over the city. Yet beyond that, the Western Front remained quiet. This worried the German chief for two reasons. One, it required the operation to drag out longer than expected. And two, the unpredictability of the Allies gave him no clear timetable. Here is something remarkable. Falkenhayn was not ignorant of the situation. He could see the massive build-up happening on the Somme. The second army general, Fritz von Bülow, directly opposite the British in that sector, made repeated warnings of enemy intention. But Falkenhayn, for reasons still unclear, never appreciated this threat. This is particularly dumbfounding, and I can find no logical explanation for it. Part of the reason could be because it did not fit his strategic mindset. If the British were going to assist the French, they would have done so already, right? The five-month delay between February the 21st and July the 1st seemed to prove that Britain lacked the capacity to strike. On another level, this also meant that France would continue to fight and bleed alone. Another explanation is that Falkenhayn expected the British to fight alongside the Royal Navy. This would mean the attack would have to occur further north, closer to Ypres on the Belgian coast. The second option is actually not too far off the mark. As we'll see next episode, one of Haig's proposed schemes was to capture the Belgian ports via an amphibious landing. So as the waiting game continued, German command grew nervous. The temptation to withhold further offensives until the Allied counterattack was undeniable. In fact, it was probably the best option available. Except, it did not happen. At this point, it was a matter of prestige. Falkenhayn's strategy had to work because really there was no plan B. The chief had staked all on the gamble, and now was not the time for defeatism. In short, ambition, not abnegation, won the day. Too much had been gambled and sacrificed already. The German army was plunged up to the hilt in the most desperate struggle of the war, so the idea of not seeing it through was inadmissible. Besides, with the capture of Fort Vaux, they had driven a wedge in the French line, heartening the local German commanders who took it as an indication that one or two more assaults would break the deadlock. As we discussed last episode, the capture of Fort Vaux was just the beginning of a larger offensive. It was to be the final effort to capture the ridge overlooking Verdun, which would allow them to press on into the city itself. For the Germans, their immediate target was the Thiemont stronghold, a triangular network of forts consisting of Vaux, Souville, and Tavernes. With Vaux in their possessions, the Germans hoped to expose the salient, which now formed into the French lines. The combatants faced each other across a narrow, H-shaped battlefield. Forts Douaumont and Vaux anchored the upper half, while three smaller forts, Souville, Belleville, and Saint-Michel, commanded the lower half. The immediate German objective was Fort Souville, 
the nucleus of the H, which protected several important ravines defending the stronghold. The first was Fontaine Ravine, which ran southwest from Vaux and connected to Souville. From Souville to the northwest was Chambateau Ravine. Chambateau Ravine formed the crossbar of the H, running directly through Fleury and intersecting with two important fieldworks, the ouvrages of Theomont and Freud de Terre. These ouvrages and the village of Fleury would encompass the epicenter of the fighting. To give you an idea of how concentrated the battlefield was, it would take just over an hour's walk to cover its perimeter. Before we begin, you're probably asking yourself, just what the heck is an ouvrage? Essentially, an ouvrage is a small fieldwork, somewhere between a large bunker and a small fort. Armed with retractable 75 and machine guns, the purpose of an ouvrage is to fill in the gaps between the larger forts, rounding out the defensive shell by protecting the movement of troops within the valley. This plateau, which I'll collectively refer to as Fleury Ridge for simplicity, had already seen its share of fighting, a title of ebb and flow which wore landmarks beyond recognition and left the ground flayed. Fleury itself was little more than a grey smear, marked by the skeletal remains of houses and crudely made signposts. Following the capture of Fort Vaux, the Germans had attacked the Ouvrage de Thiemont on the 8th of June, but with little success. Torrential rain had turned the battlefield into a poisonous swamp, and for two weeks, the Germans were unable to advance. But from this initial fighting emerged one of the great legends surrounding the Battle of Verdun, which continues to fascinate even today. The famous Tranche de Bayonnette, the Trench of Bayonets. On the 12th of June, two battalions from the 137th Infantry Regiment were holding an entrenched area just north of Theomont. This particular ravine was in clear sight of German artillery spotters, who subjected the infantry to murderous shelling day and night. The worst hit was 3rd Company, which during a single bombardment the previous evening lost over 56% of their effectives, 94 men from 167. Desperate calls from the beleaguered were sent out, but none were answered. The night of June 12th, 3rd Company was shelled again and contact was lost. No man from the company was seen or heard from again. It would take until January 1919 before the first clues regarding the fate of 3rd Company would appear. French battlefield teams, led by the newest CO of the 137th, scoured the area looking for information. Curiously, they could find no evidence that the company had ever been there, until they looked at their feet. 3rd Company Trench was completely filled in, but emerging from the soil was a row of rusty bayonets, still attached to rifles, and below, the corpses of 3rd Company still gripping them. The men had been buried alive by the German bombardment, or so the legend goes. When news of the discovery hit the mainstream, it caught the attention of the world. An American millionaire footed the bill to have the site preserved and roofed over. The bayonets were removed, and now a row of crosses marked the resting place of each man. The trench of the bayonet is a disturbing reminder of Verdun's macabre nature, and it remains a popular destination for battlefield tourists. It's about a 10-minute walk from the ossuary, roughly halfway to Fort Duomond. But even at Verdun, the great laboratory of death, how does one differentiate between reality and fiction? Death came in unaccountable ways without warning or malice, regardless of the uniform. Men were shot to pieces, dismembered by shrapnel, and vaporized to a red smear by shell blasts. So then, is the trench of the bayonet really a stretch of the imagination? 
Most historians agree that the basis of the legend is most definitely true. Third Company fought and died heroically at their trench, but most likely had died in all the various ways in which other men, before and after, had died at Verdun. The soil was probably thrown over by passing Germans, and the bayonets used as makeshift graves. Unfortunately, there are no credible accounts about what happened that night. The most reliable documents come from individuals who were far removed from the event itself. As is often the case though, a lack of evidence only helps strengthen the myth. Still, the trench of the bayonet is a potent reminder of how vicious the fighting became that summer. Although von Falkenhayn and Crown Prince Wilhelm had their doubts, there was one German officer who remained convinced that victory was near. The 5th Army Chief of Staff, Schmidt von Neubelsdorf. Neubelsdorf had been the architect of Operation Makeup. It was now tasked with leading this next assault against the Amand. Sensing that this final push would bring victory, Neubelsdorf was enamored. Like Charles Mangin, Neubelsdorf possessed, in the words of Alistair Horn, a brutal, unimaginative single-mindedness. He was Prussian down to his very core, earning the nickname Oakhard from his contemporaries. There was no flair of Peyton, nor suave elegance of Falkenhayn. He believed the only way to defeat his enemies was to punch a hole straight through, and his next battle was designed to be just that. Despite Brusilov's success in the East, Nubelsdorf's optimism never wavered. In fact, he used the Russian breakthrough to push his stratagem further. Unlike those who argued to suspend Verdun, Nubelsdorf urged it to continue, arguing that only with the occupation of Verdun would Germany be able to meet threats elsewhere. Nubelsdorf then set his sights on the next phase of Operation Makeup. Somehow cobbling together a force of 30,000 men, this contingent would launch a three-pronged attack across a narrow five-kilometer front, with the main blow falling between Theomont and Fleury. To expose the gap, Nubelsdorf had a secret weapon. On the left flank, he placed the best troops Germany had to offer. Recalled from the Balkans, the Bavarian Alpine Corps represented the cream of the German army. Formed as a counterweight against the French chasseurs, the Alpine Corps were elite stormtroops, specializing in mountainous warfare. They were lightly armed, equipped with little more than a rifle, grenades, and bayonet. But that was the point. Commanded by General Kraft von Delminzingen, the Alpine Corps were to exploit gaps in the line punctured by the opening bombardment. These specially trained troops, famous for the Edelweiss insignia, were to surge through and create chaos before the main assault got underway. With these elite troops in his possession, Nubelsdorf boasted he would be in Verdun within three days. Nubelsdorf had reason to be optimistic. Nevel's bungling response to the attack on Fort Vaux indicated that France was scraping the bottom of the barrel. Furthermore, on the extreme west bank, units from the French 29th had surrendered following an attack at Avoucourt. This all cemented in Nubelsdorf that Falkenhayn's bleeding white strategy was indeed working, and he was determined to prove his doubters. In addition to the Alpine Corps, Nubelsdorf had another trick up his sleeve. As the combatants made their way up the line, they noticed large stockpiles of specially marked shells, each painted with a small green cross on the blasting cap. Rumors of a new weapon being deployed had circled for weeks, and its presence, here and now, hinted that the coming blow would prove decisive. On the 21st of June, German gunners carpeted Fleury Ridge with a terrific bombardment. A lieutenant of the Bavarian Regiment described the spectacle like a boiling rumble like that of a mighty volcano, 
as the shells vibrated overhead. French positions near Thiamont and Fleury were smashed. All day, the German guns continued their incessant barrage, a celestial score of rumbling, grinding, and tearing. Then, like clockwork the following morning, the guns fell silent, and stillness settled along the battlefield. French units defending the cross ridge, the 129th at Thiamont, the 130th at Fleury, and 12th at Souville, ran to the parapet, expecting to see the unmistakable silhouette of German attack troops. Except, the battlefield was empty. Instead, a second bombardment greeted them. As the shells screamed overhead, men rushed to their dugouts and hunkered down, awaiting the terrible impact which inevitably followed. The shells hit the earth with the sound of a wet drum, sinking deep into the mud. Bewildered, some optimists reported that the Germans were firing duds. Laughter broke out among the French, who hurled insults at their attackers. A lieutenant of the French 129th recalled the sound as if thousands of beads were falling along a carpet. Then, like before, the artillery fell silent. Sure that the attack was coming, the infantry returned to their positions and waited. Minutes passed, and again, no Germans. This time, the silence was more blood-chilling than before. Marcel Dupont, an artillery gunner stationed near Fort Saint-Michel, ventured out to take in the curious sight. Quote, The sky is clear. All the stars are bright. And in this calm air, thousands of soft whistling noises go past. One would think that countless swallows are flying about in search of food. Behind us in the distance, we can hear the dull rumble of the guns. But in front of us, where this nocturnal flight is coming from, we cannot hear any explosions. End quote. Then, out of the ravine, crept an acrid, nauseating smell. A pungent, sickening odor of putrefaction, compounded with the mustiness of stale vinegar, recalled the lieutenant near Fort Souville. The shells were not duds. They were gas shells, with specially timed fuses designed to pop off after impact. Thinking they were duds, the French gunners were oblivious to the creeping danger. This gas was different, more deadly than chlorine. This was phosgene, or green cross gas, named after the uniquely marked shells it was carried in. Phosgene was colorless, and since it was heavier than chlorine, it hung like a curtain before seeping its tentacles into the ground. It was designed in secret by German chemical firms, for the purpose of neutralizing the French forts and artillery behind the line. And it worked perfectly. 116,000 green cross shells were fired that morning, and the toxic concentration overwhelmed the French masks. Chaos erupted behind the line. Terrified pack animals bucked and reared, broke from their tethers and ran amok. In desperation, the gunners struggled to put on their masks, but it was no use. The phosgene still got through, as it was designed to. Even men with their masks on collapsed to the ground, tearing at their throats, their screams muffled by the constricting fabric. In the haze of the gas and alien appearance of the masked men, one French gunner compared the scene to the carnival of death. Phosgene attacked everything. It stripped vegetation and killed insects. Even the large swarms of flies, which had grown fat on the corpse-infested battlefield, fell to the ground. To the combatants, this was a minor blessing, as they were spared their torment for at least a few days. It was the French batteries who bore the brunt of the phosgene. Gun crews were reduced to one or two men each. One by one, the batteries on the east bank fell silent. Then, the gas swept south, 
past the Fort Saint-Michel and Belleville, reaching as far as the Verdun suburbs. Panic spread. None of the supplies could make it through the curtain. Soup kitchens, water cisterns, and ambulances were soon tangled on congested roads. For several hours, the Voie Sacrée ground to a halt, and the path to Verdun was wide open. The Germans were clever. Armed with the lessons of Ypres and Luce, they did not follow the gas with an infantry attack. Instead, they greeted the French with a second, thunderous bombardment of high-explosive shell, the bulk of which landed in rear areas, further isolating French units at the front. The attack plan went off without a hitch. The main German blow struck the morning of June the 23rd and nearly turned into a rout. The Bavarians burst through the smoke at exactly 6am and punched a hole right through the center of the line. The Ouvrage de Thiaumont was overrun before its garrison could respond. To the east of Thiaumont, Delminzingen's Alpine Corps, supported by the 2nd Prussian Jaegers, stormed into Fleury. There, they were met by four regiments of the 130th Division, who caked with blood and dirt, clashed with the Germans like men possessed. Having been subjected to three days of murderous shelling, the Battle of Fleury was chaotic and disorderly. Hand-to-hand -hand struggles took place in the cellars of ruined houses. Hidden machine guns tore holes in the German ranks. But the speed of the advance was uncanny. The defenders dung it along Champoteau Ravine soon found themselves caught in a pincer. It took the Alpine Corps just 20 minutes to reach Fleury, and by 9am would weed out remaining resistance. The opening three hours of the assault marked the 5th Army's best gain since February the 21st, 2.5 kilometers of frontage. In Verdun standards, this was catastrophic. Pétain was quick on his feet. A torrent of messages reached his headquarters at Bar-le-Duc, warning him that the front was near breaking point. The Bavarians were now just 4 kilometers from Verdun and less than 1,200 meters from the final ridge. From their captured positions at Thiaumont, the Germans could see the rotundas of the citadel and the gleaming waters of the Meuse in the summer sun. In celebration, the Bavarians fired ranging shots into the suburbs, which caused further panic. Yes, the Germans were that close. Verdun's military governor set about preparing the city for a siege. Houses were fortified, and work parties set about digging trenches in the streets. The wounded were evacuated to the ancient citadel, which was soon surrounded by barbed wire and machine gun nests. For the first time since his arrival at Verdun, Pétain was in a panic, although he would never show it. He turned to Joffre, begging for the Somme offensive to be launched and that immediate reserves be sent to buttress the line. Despite his jealousies, Joffre knew he had no choice. The chaos created by the attack looked like the first days of battle all over again. There was no time for a tactical withdrawal. Without help, the East Bank would crumble, and the Second Army would be hurled back across the Meuse. Joffre acted quickly, and sent Pétain four divisions, which were immediately dispatched to counterattack. Nevel began to pump every man with a rifle into the grinder. By midday, the effects of the Fogine had worn off, and French counterfire reached hurricane level, roaring back against the Germans. Fleury was engulfed in a circle of thunder. In a poisoned landscape of mud, ruined houses, and corpses in various stages of decay, Republican France and Imperial Germany wrestled each other over its remains. Men were cut down in droves. Dead bodies were stacked on the parapet of shell holes or used as supports for machine gun and mortar crews. The artillery shrieked overhead, growing faster, louder, and nearer with each passing minute. The stink of battle, exuberated by the summer heat, drove men out of their minds. Nerves collapsed under the strain, 
one German colonel fell dead of a heart attack as he ordered his men into the furnace. Yet somehow, in the hell storm of rolling metal and twisted flesh, the fighting continued. The battle for Fleury raged throughout the night, but by the morning on the 24th of June, French efforts to retake the village had failed, and it remained in German hands. A true battle of attrition, it was exhaustion and dehydration which brought the fighting to a standstill. With Ouvrage de Theomont and Fleury in his possession, Nubelsdorf was beside himself. Alongside Falkenheim, he invited the Kaiser to the front to watch the 5th Army's victorious march into Verdun. But what Nubelsdorf failed to appreciate was that by capturing Fleury, he committed a number of strategic and tactical errors. Although they won brilliant successes on the opening day, a look at the map told a different story. Attacking on such a narrow front was his first mistake. Instead of making the French stretch themselves across a wider front, they allowed them to pool their resources at a single point. The French proved their elasticity. The 5th Army had thus marched themselves into a V-shaped salient, flanked by elevated French guns which were left unmolested. Since Dubelsdorf sought to burst through the front line, he concentrated his artillery on the positions in front and not on the wings. This meant that attacking infantry could only advance through a narrow corridor created by the heavy guns. Once this gap closed, however, the infantry found they had nowhere to turn. They had seized Fleury while the gap was open, but were slow to exploit it. The French were thus able to plug the gap, containing the Germans from advancing beyond the ridge. That was the strategic error. Tactically, is a bit more complicated. Their first error concerns the use of Fajdin. Without trying to sound insensitive, the Germans squandered its usage. Not that it didn't have the desired effect. It reduced 1,600 French casualties and almost led to a breakthrough. The problem was that they did not have enough stockpile for further attacks. Peyton and Nevel, of course, had no idea, and lived in fear that a renewed Fajdin attack was right around the corner. Fortunately, it would take several weeks before additional phosgene shells arrived, but by then, French scientists had developed improved gas masks, which blunted its effects. The second tactical error concerns the communication system which the Germans developed. As we've seen, battlefield communication at Verdun was a nightmare. Ground conditions and enemy artillery made communication so poor that orders often took hours to arrive. This was just the varied nature of the battle mixed with the limits of technology. Telephone lines between battalion and division commands were cut by shrapnel. Signal flares or blinker lights were difficult to read through the smoke. Field runners, if they survived, required hours to complete a trip. In many cases, it was the carrier pigeon which became the chosen method of communication. That fact alone speaks volumes about the challenges facing command and control. Being out of touch with the rear for hours, if not days at a time, meant that officers had to make up their own orders on the fly basing their assessments on what they could see for themselves. It was isolation which became a defining characteristic at Verdun, and a big reason why the battle ebbed was because those with the information could not pass it on systematically to those who needed it. For the assault on Fleury, the 5th Army had adopted a complex system of colored rockets. White rockets would signal the capture of a position, while a red rocket indicated a unit was moving to its next objective. In practice, however, this system failed to work. During the shell storms over Fleury, these rockets became indistinguishable from bursting artillery. Furthermore, the 1st Bavarians, attacking northwest of Fleury, had swept over Ouvrage de Thiamont so quickly that they were already halfway to Freud de Terre before Fleury had been captured. This small misstep would come to have huge consequences.
After capturing Theomont, the first Bavarians looked to maintain their torn pace. Leaving a small party behind to consolidate their holding, the bulk of the assault group continued on to Freud de Terre. This time, however, finding the fieldwork was not so easy. Months of shelling had annihilated points of reference, transforming the battlefield into a wasteland of helmets, packs, and ammunition strewn about. The Bavarians stumbled over limbs and corpses as they occupied the forward line. It was some time before Lieutenant Carl Ludwig, the leader of the assault group, located their bearings. Amongst the rubble, Ludwig spotted a gun turret, just over 300 meters away. From his binoculars, Ludwig deduced it was one of the Orage's 75mm artillery pieces. It looked out of action, and judging by the flayed landscape around him, it was doubtful the French garrison was still inside. Ludwig ordered his men forward. The Bavarians jumped from their shell holes and made their way across no man's land. When they crossed within 150 meters, the French battery roared to life. Somehow, Freud de Terre was still operational, and not only that, its three rotating turrets, two machine guns, and twin 75mm artillery pieces remained in action. The fort's commandant had been tipped off by an observer at Theomond and had done well preparing for the attack. With shells for their 75s in short supply, the garrison filled their cannon with shrapnel and calmly allowed the Bavarians to advance. As soon as they appeared, all available weapons opened fire. The first wave of Bavarians were scythed down by machine guns or ripped apart by rolling shrapnel. The sudden burst of violence caused the Bavarians to stumble, so Ludwig ordered a flanking maneuver. Crawling on their bellies, they worked their way around the base and scrambled up on the roof, tossing hand grenades down the ventilation chimneys. Here was where it all went sour. As the Bavarians scaled the roof of Freud de Terre, an observer at Fort Duomond, just a 40-minute walk away, reported that the Ouvrage had been taken and relayed the red rocket signal to the groups of Fleury. This was premature. The French garrison had held off the Bavarians and inflicted horrendous casualties, some 50% of their effectives on June the 23rd alone, prompting Ludwig to suspend further attacks until reinforcements arrived. Although they lost Fleury, the French retained Freud de Terre, and it would remain their property until the end of the war. For the Germans, though, their failure to take the Ouvrage had serious consequences. It left the French with controlling views of Fleury and the open slopes below it. French observers were thus able to call immediate artillery bombardments on the Germans below. For the rest of the summer, not a mouse could move in the Fleury sector without French observers noticing, a big part of why the Germans never advanced beyond the ruined village. Despite the capture of Theomont and Fleury, the 5th Army found themselves stuck in the exact same situation. They had driven a wedge into the French line and reached the base of Fort Souville. Yet the French line, stretched to the limit and paper thin, did not break. By this point, the heat of battle and scorching sun had driven the infantry mad with thirst. Artillery was zeroed in, and no supplies could be brought forward. In the trenches and shell holes, men lived among the lice, rats, and insects, creatures that existed only to torment. Under constant shelling, they lived like troglodytes, and when by some divine grace food did arrive, it was often cold, shot full of holes, or contaminated by poisonous nitrates. Water was even more difficult to come by. Both sides knew how closely linked water and morale were, and targeted these sources indifferently. Supply runners, bent over by the heavy pails strapped to their backs, rarely made the trip. That summer outside Fleury and Fort Souville, men literally died of thirst. Some suffered hallucinations, but others were forced to drink from ponds poisoned by rotting corpses. 
Fleury would never be rebuilt. In the days and weeks which followed, exchanging shellfire would continue to disinter what remained. Throughout the summer, it would exchange hands no less than 13 times, often two or three times in a single day. By the time of the armistice, there would be no buildings, houses, or businesses to return to, not a brick. The surrounding area was so poisoned by explosives and arsenic that it was rendered uninhabitable. Cultivation efforts failed, and its remains were left to nature. Today, Fleury holds a special distinction, un village qui est mort pour la France, a village that died for France. Like eight other villages at Verdun to hold this title, Fleury remains the most infamous, and a visit to the battlefield will quickly impress upon you why. Located behind the main interpretation center, you can follow a white cement path leading into the woods. As you descend off the main road, silence overwhelms you. The trench lines and shell craters still dissect the forest, covered by a century of overgrowth but still perfectly preserved. Every few feet or so, you'll see stone markers protruding from the ground. These mark the location of homes and businesses destroyed by the fighting. On your left, a stonemasonry. On your right, a grocer. Then a shoemaker, a washhouse, and a blacksmith, each victims of the sinister battlefield. If you visit thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, I have uploaded a few photos from my recent visit to Verdun, which included stops at Fleury, the Ossuary, and Douaumont. So if you're interested, go and have a look. By morning on the 24th of June, the line stagnated. Theumont and Fleury had fallen, allowing the Germans to threaten Fort Souville. This marked the farthest point of advance ever achieved by the 5th Army at Verdun, but its failure to produce a decisive breakthrough brought a new wave of disillusionment to both infantry and officers. Many were as tired as the French, and because they had been kept longer in line, even more so. The Germans never adopted Pétain's bucket system. Forward units were rarely rotated out, and it was common for soldiers to have been in the firing line since February. This was because Falkenhayn refused to allow it. He needed to maintain the facade that his plan was working, and pulling units from other areas to replenish losses would have been irretraceable. Instead, German infantry had no hope of leave, and were expected to fight even if worn down to the marrow. Fresh-faced 18-year-olds were sent to top up the losses, but proved themselves less capable of standing up to the demands of redundant fighting. Inevitably, the hitting power of the regiment wavered. Fear and disillusion spread. A colonel of the 1st Bavarian stuck outside for a deter, complained that so many corpses and body parts lay scattered about, it menaced the health of his troops. Kaiser Wilhelm, who arrived to witness the final capture of Verdun on the 24th of June, quietly returned to his motorcade, without uttering a word to his senior staff. Under these conditions, the 5th Army was simply incapable of continuing. They had been pushed and pushed, promised that each offensive would be the final one. This time, however, that statement was true. The attack of 23 June was a close shave for France. In fact, not Joffre, Pétain, or Nivelle would appreciate how close it was until the war finally ended. The Second Army had bent and wavered against the onslaught, but found enough tenacity to prevent a breakthrough. Nivelle's famous order of the day, Il ne passeront pas, they shall not pass, reflected France's rock-like determination. Pétain as well summarized the situation as best he could. Somberly, yet undefeated, Pétain remarked simply, We have not been lucky today, but we shall be tomorrow. Turns out, Pétain was right. That morning, the 24th of June, 1916, 
the Anglo-French guns opened up on the Somme. The previous day, Joffre telephoned Sir Douglas Haig, urging the British commander to bring the date forward for a second time. Having already switched the start date from August 1st to July 1st, nothing could be done to change it again. But Haig did have a compromise. He agreed to start his artillery bombardment on the spot. The preparatory bombardment on the Somme instantly dwarfed the German one at Verdun. It lasted a full week. 3,000 field and heavy guns and more than 1,400 trench mortars were mustered for the work of obliterating the enemy's defenses. Over 12,000 tons of shells, some 1,738,000 rounds were fired, ranging from 58mm mortars to 12-inch naval guns and massive 15-inch howitzers. Although the Battle of Verdun still had six months to run, the opening bombardment on the Somme marked the death knell of Falkenhayn's strategy. France had held on, and Great Britain did not abandon her in her hour of need. The firepower unleashed that morning proved that Britain was equal to the task. The 5th Army would try once more to reach Verdun on July the 10th, but poor weather and impeccable French counterfire kept them contained within a 400-meter frontage. On the 14th, Charles Meijan unleashed a series of counterstrokes, designed to retake the land lost the previous month. Within two days, the 5th Army had been pulled back to the starting points on July the 10th, and from there, they dug in to defend. While the German offensive was not officially suspended until late August, its cutting edge had been blunted. No more gains were to be made. And like Hitler's armies who spotted the spires of Moscow in the dull autumn haze, the city of Verdun proved no less unattainable. The battle along the Meuse did not cease with the opening of the Somme. Quite the contrary. Instead, the two great battles were grotesque, conjoined twins of the other. Their rival claims over French resources notwithstanding, they were bound together in both planning and execution. Verdun undermined the Anglo-French contribution to the general Allied offensive, insomuch that by the time of its execution, the Somme was radically different from its first conception. And if we are to understand why it began so poorly for the British, we'll need to put the Somme in its proper context. In the next episode, we'll begin this process, and turn our attention to the Somme in more detail. But we'll be going about it a different way. Since the Somme, and most notably July the 1st, 1916, is the most infamous day in Britain's military history, I'm going to dedicate the next episode to the man most associated and blamed for its outcome, Sir Douglas Haig. Who was Haig? Was he the incompetent technophobe who ordered legions of men to their death with total indifference? Even today, his name is synonymous with the follies of First World War generalship. Popular opinion sees him as a stupid and callous man, who kept his liquor cabinet well stocked while his troops suffered in rat-infested trenches. Casualty figures on the Somme and Passchendaele are cited as further proof of his incompetence. If I do my job correctly, we'll see that Haig was in fact none of these described things. This does not absolve him of his mistakes, of which there are to be plenty, but to provide a balanced view of the man and the difficulties his armies faced in the mud of the Somme. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. I would like to thank listeners Polly and David who recently donated to the show. Thank you very much for your donations, guys. If you are enjoying the show and wish to make a donation, you'll find the donate button up on the homepage. Donations go to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources, of which I am always on the hunt for. Another way to help us out is to go to iTunes and write us a 5-star review. 
iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 47 of the Great War Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.